and thank you for joining us for episode three of Common Ground. I'm your host, Brandon Price. So I was thinking the other day that in order to find common ground, it might be helpful if we identified some of the elements and conditions that the presence or absence of could support our efforts to replace partisan discourse with authentic consideration of diverse points of view. So things like working together to avoid logical fallacies and pointing them out when we observe them. And with that in mind, the next couple of episodes are devoted to both describing what I believe to be the conditions that promote finding common ground while also examining some real-world dilemmas. Before we dive in today, let me say thanks to some of our new listeners, including Albert, Caleb, Bill, Matt, Bobby, and Tammy. And special thanks to my friend Veronica, who asked why I was talking like William Shatner in the original Star Trek as well as thanks to my friend Jason, who commented, good show, but if I took a shot of whiskey every time you said the word so, I would have died at least five times. Not sure that you can die five times, but I do appreciate the feedback and will effort to sound less like James Tiberius Kirk and to reduce my usage of that word that shall not be mentioned. Okay, today I'm going to start by tackling what I believe to be the most critical conditions necessary to accomplish our goal of replacing partisan discourse with an authentic consideration of diverse points of view. And I'll start with what I believe to be the most important condition needed for us to move past this partisanship, which has become so prevalent in our society. And if I could wave a magic wand and make this first condition we're going to discuss ubiquitous in people, I think we would have a much less siloed society and, again, be much more likely to find common ground we're looking for. So in my mind, the single most important element we need to find common ground is... Drum, drum roll, please. Post-conventional morality. And we will discuss that right after this short musical interlude. Some of you might be asking, what the heck is post-conventional morality uh, or post-conventional moral judgment? Let me try to give a little background here. And I'd like to note for all the psychologists out there listening, please 
feel free to email me and tell me how I got this wrong. I am certainly not a psychologist, but I will try to do a good job summing up post-conventional morality. But if I did get it wrong, you can email me at cgwithbp at gmail.com, and we will set the record straight. Anyway, a little history. In 1958, psychologist Lawrence Kohlberg developed a theory of moral development of individuals. And this theory built upon Piaget's theory of moral development for children. And essentially, in Kohlberg's theory, uh, we go through multiple stages of moral development from infant through adults. And in his theory, the first stage is called the pre-conventional stage. And this is where as infants and young children, we learn to make our decisions and judgments based on rewards and punishments. So for example, a child decides not to lie to their parent because the punishment is a timeout that they're worried about getting if they are caught lying. Uh, according to Kohlberg, the vast majority of us continue to progress beyond this pre-conventional stage in which we're motivated by rewards and punishments to another stage known as the conventional stage in which decision-making is motivated by adherence to rules and or loyalties to family, group, or tribe. And so, for example, in this stage, we might be willing to censor the speech of someone else because their views are inconsistent with that of the peer group that you belong to and their views on the matter. And we don't want our group being contradicted. Uh, this conventional stage is where the moral development of most people ends, the stage at which our moral judgment is based on the laws or based on the loyalties that we have to our, I will say, tribe for a better, lack of a better word. However, Kohlberg did note that some individuals may advance to a post-conventional stage of moral development in which decision-making is based on employing universal principles. So, for example, one in this stage might say, I believe in the principle of free speech, and I will fight to defend it, even if I disagree with the position and the person making that speech. And personally, I find that people in my life that I most respect and gravitate towards regardless of which way they lean ideologically, are these folks that are motivated by their principles and being consistent with their principles rather than their loyalties or the rules. And this is not to say someone cannot have post-conventional ethics and still favor censoring speech, for example, based on their own principles. Maybe someone believes that 
you know, a principle for them is that no hateful things should ever be said, and they want that applied to society universally. I may not agree with that, but I can respect the individual's application of the principle if they do so consistently and that they make decisions consistently based on the principles that they believe in rather than what benefits them or what rules they are following. Anyway, one way you might recognize these folks with post-conventional moral judgment is by their willingness to not only listen to other points of view, but also to speak up against the views or actions of their own quote-unquote side when those views or actions are not consistent with their principles they wish to have applied to society consistently. And I've prepared some examples of the types of things you might hear from those with post-conventional moral judgment. And I don't necessarily agree or disagree with all of the arguments here, but my point is I appreciate that these folks are willing to disagree with their quote-unquote side when the views of the other side violates the principles that they hold dear. So for the sake of argument here, I'm going to use the example of Republicans and Democrats, because I think those are the two largest groups. I guess I could have said right or left, but uh, a Republican with post-conventional moral judgment might say something like this. I want more justices on the Supreme Court who will apply a strict interpretation of the Constitution. However, I do think it was hypocritical for Mitch McConnell to suggest that eight months before an election was not enough time to consider a Supreme Court nominee under Obama. But now he says two months is enough time to consider a Supreme Court nominee under a Republican president. Another example of post-conventional moral judgment might be a Republican saying, I was duped into believing there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I think we should admit when we were wrong and learn from our mistakes in order to not make them again. Or they might say, I dislike Biden, but he was right to get us out of Afghanistan. I believe America should not be the police force for the world. And on the left, amongst the Democrats, you might hear something like, I'm glad Joe Biden won the election, but it was wrong for the Department of Justice to suggest the stories about Hunter Biden's laptop were Russian propaganda right before the election and big tech's censorship of stories about the contents of the laptop also violated the, the principle of free speech. Or they might say, I was duped into believing that Trump colluded with the Russians. I think we should admit when we were wrong and learn from our mistakes so we don't make them again. Or finally, they might say, it was wrong for President Biden to extend the housing eviction moratorium during COVID. Firstly, the Centers for Disease Control should not be deciding if landlords can evict tenants, as this 
kind of bureaucratic overreach undermines democracy and the role of Congress in making the laws. Secondly, the Supreme Court already indicated the moratorium was unconstitutional and the president should not ignore these checks and balances. I'm for a housing eviction moratorium, but it should go through Congress. Again, these are just some examples and you may or may not agree with these statements, but the point is to recognize that there are individuals who are trying to act based on a consistent application of their principles rather than make decisions based on their loyalties to party in this case. And I think we need more people analyzing issues and making arguments and decisions based on consistent application of principles rather than loyalty to their side, if we are to find common ground. And that is why I thought that the number one condition for finding common ground is post-conventional moral judgment. Whew, that was a doozy. So with that, let's take a short break before we move on with condition number two for finding common ground. on to the second condition we need to promote finding common ground and this is people willing to engage in an authentic consideration of the contentions of the other side which really does play into the first condition that we had as well and I do want to make sure that I add a note here about what I said that we need folks to consider the contentions of really people on all sides. And what I'm not saying here, and what I'm not saying um, is that we need to compromise on every issue. And I know a lot of people might say that you need two parties willing to compromise to solve problems, but I think there is a big distinction between having an authentic engagement and consideration of an issue and compromising on an issue. And for example, uh, imagine if the United States were invaded by Canada, and this may be a rather silly scenario I've created here, and I know it's hard to imagine, but. I guess just think of the reverse of there was a there was a John Candy movie. I think it was like late 80s or early 90s in which some US citizens invade Canada. And I think it was a fight that started over at a hockey game, a fight over someone saying that Canadian beer was bad or something like that. But in our scenario, this is different because Canada invades the United States. Um, maybe the war begins when Neil Young, who is a Canadian, uh, wants to take over the U.S. so he can make sure that the we get the right information from the right sources, perhaps. And I, I realize as I say that, that really isn't a fair critique of Neil Young's 
position. I was referring to the, the Joe Rogan, um, his being upset about disinformation. And it's kind of a violation of a fair presentation of all sides. I think maybe I'm just still bitter about um, back in the 90s, I went to see a Pearl Jam concert and Eddie Vedder got sick and we were forced to listen to Neil Young instead of Pearl Jam in 100 degree heat in San Francisco, which never happens. It was a horrible day. Uh, anyway, I digress. So imagine that this Canadian leader, whether it's Neil Young or Justin Bieber, or oh, actually, uh, William Shatner, I think he's Canadian as well. Imagine one of them says that they are invading and they demand that we give Canada all of the states west of the Mississippi. Well, we certainly wouldn't compromise by offering them Idaho. And as polite as the Canadian people might be, we're not giving them a single Idaho spud. Uh, and that's because you just don't compromise for the sake of compromise. Uh, similarly, if two people were arguing about what six times six was, and one says it's 36 and the other says 42, you don't compromise and agree it's 39. Anyway, that got way off track. The point is, we don't have to compromise but we do need to engage in an authentic consideration of the ideas of the other side. And to do so, we have to be open to questioning our existing beliefs and seeking truth. And we just can't do this from our silos. If we sit around getting our news from Fox News only or CNN only, we're really not considering opposing points of view um, and we need to seek out the perspectives of others um, and as I as I failed to do so earlier in my in relation to my conversation about Neil Young in addition to an honest consideration of the other side's point of view we also have to demand an honest presentation of the facts from our own side. And this doesn't mean just not lying. It means we need to provide all of the information needed to make an informed decision. And that means not omitting the information that does not support your side of the argument. And I'm going to give an example. Um, the other day, I read a story about the COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer possibly becoming available for children under five. And as a side note here, in the interest of full disclosure, I should probably share that I have received three doses of the Pfizer vaccine. So yes, I'm on team Pfizer, but that does not mean that I don't think that we should present the information that promotes the vaccine in an honest light. So back to this quote unquote news story. First, the story suggested as evidence that there was a need for 
children under five to be vaccinated, that there has been a huge increase in children hospitalized with COVID. And the, the, the key word there is with. And this wasn't suggesting or saying directly that these children were hospitalized because of COVID, but they were hospitalized with COVID, that they had COVID. So the reader trying to make a decision about whether children under five should be vaccinated or whether their child under five should be vaccinated. If I'm in that case, I'm completely left to wonder how many of these kids came into the hospital because they had symptoms from COVID versus how many were in the hospital for another reason and tested positive for COVID. And obviously this is a pretty important distinction. And the only reason I can think that the author would not address it would be a incompetence, not realizing there's a difference between being hospitalized with something or because of something, or being biased and not wanting the reader to have all the information. Um, would they run a story that said 10,000 people died with colds last year? And no, probably not, because everyone would say, you know, they died of something else and had colds. I don't care if they died with a cold if they were hit by a bus. Um, and you would think if the author wanted to let the reader make an authentic consideration of the issue, they would have also included other statistics to help the reader decide if they agreed that children under five need to be vaccinated or receive this Pfizer vaccine. Things like the death rate in children under five uh, with or without pre-existing conditions from COVID seems like a pretty important statistic to include in that article. Um, but, you know, maybe a parent realizes there's a very low risk of their children dying, but wants to make sure they don't become seriously ill with disease. So they're thinking about the vaccine for that reason. That stat should probably be included. Or maybe the parent accepts that the child has very low risk of dying or becoming seriously ill, but they really want to do their part to protect the community and those who are most at risk. So they're considering having their four-year-old get vaccinated in order to protect others. And if you're trying to make that decision, wouldn't you want to share with the reader the difference in the rate at which a four-year-old is likely to get and transmit the virus if they receive this vaccine versus if they do not, um, or at least what the expected rate would be. If a four-year-old is 80% less likely to get and transmit COVID because they get vaccinated, uh, I, as a parent, might be willing to do it. But if they're only 5% less likely to get and transmit the disease, then I might not have them get vaccinated. Anyway, uh, the point is, of all the stats the author could have shared, they chose to share the number of kids in hospitals who have COVID, 
regardless of whether they came to the hospital due to COVID symptoms or something else. And I think this kind of reporting has become prevalent where you intentionally leave out information and it's, it's best lazy and at worst dishonest and manipulative. And we all need to demand better. And writers and podcasters need to be professionals and let the reader or listener decide and give the reader or listener the information. Withholding pertinent information that would let people make their own judgment for fear that they might not reach the conclusion you want them to, in my mind, is really as bad as lying to get them to reach the conclusion you want them to. And bearing the facts that don't support your con your contentions at the bottom of the story you write or the somewhere at the end of your podcast is almost as bad. And since we're on the topic of COVID, uh, on a side note, and I know a lot of listeners will disagree with what I'm about to say, and I, I really do respect that, uh, but since we're talking about COVID, I, I really would encourage those listeners who are elderly, who are most at risk, or have conditions that make them susceptible to hospitalization or death from COVID, please get vaccinated. And I, you know, I, I totally respect the, that this is your choice and you can do as you like. Uh, but for those with pre-existing conditions, if not for yourself or your family, uh, if you're a listener of this show, please do it for me because I think we have about 20 listeners and we can't afford to lose you. Um, anyway, uh, back to the issue of information being presented dishonestly. Uh, another way the media dishonestly presents information is to sway opinion uh, and to do so by taking something that happens rarely and try to make the reader or listener believe that it is common. And we saw this when folks who were consuming left-wing media sources were dramatically overestimating the percentage of people who got COVID who would need to be hospitalized. And similarly on the right, we saw people dramatically underestimating the number of people who got COVID who would be hospitalized. Um, and years ago, I recognized my own fallibility with regard to being influenced by the media or what we see in society. Um, for myself, it was, I remember reading the book Freakonomics and reading a story about how much more likely a child was to be killed by accidentally drowning than accidentally being shot. And in the story, they, you know, would a parent be more uh, cautious about sending an their child to a house with a pool or one with a gun. And of course, my mind was, I would be much less likely to send them to one with a gun. But, you know, the reality of the statistics bared out that the child was much more likely to be in danger of drowning and that these statistics matter because 
You know, if we're not concentrating and being honest about the numbers, then we're not taking actions that could reduce those drowning deaths, for example. Uh, but maybe I'm an outlier when it comes to estimating the, the prevalence of different conditions. But I thought it might be fun to put you, the listener, to the test and see how you do with a couple questions. And we'll, we'll provide those questions, and then I'll give you the quote-unquote correct answers at the end of the show. So two quick questions here for you to think about. The first one is, how many extreme Category 4 or Category 5 hurricanes have we experienced during each of the prior three decades? So again, the first question is, how many extreme hurricanes have we experienced during each of the prior three decades? So in the 1990s, 2000s, 2010s, how many hurricanes of those levels do you think we had in each of those decades? And question two, and I'm going to link back to the discussion we had earlier about COVID. What percentage of children who get COVID die from it? Again, question two is what percentage of children who get COVID die from it? So see what your guess is again. And again, um, just a note here. I present these questions not because I want to change people's minds on a particular issue, but rather to draw attention to how inaccurate our perceptions can be when we fail to consider information from diverse sources. Then again, maybe you will be less surprised by the answers to those questions than I was, and you've already got them right, and we'll see at the end of the show. Good for you if that is the case. Uh, on a side note, feel free to send me some facts that surprise you, and I'll quiz the readers on those, or the readers, the listeners on those in a future show, and then share the answers. So with that, um, we had covered three of the conditions that promote an environment in which we are more likely to find common ground. Post-conventional moral development was the first one, and authentic consideration of others' ideas was the second one, and an honest presentation of information was the third condition. And we'll refer back to these conditions, I'm sure, in future episodes. And in the next episode, we'll cover several more of these conditions, including how to avoid committing a number of logical fallacies that hinder efforts to find common ground. And a spoiler here, if you have a sanctimonious friend who says, I think we should all just trust the scientists, you're going to want to have them take a listen learn about the logical fallacies they are committing. Anyway, let's take a short break and then come back with the interesting origins of a few phrases.
welcome back. So I imagine we have all heard the phrase, this is a bellwether of things to come. One political party wins a special election for a vacant seat in Congress and the media tells us, this is a bellwether of the next election. Whichever party won this special election for this one seat is sure to win the next election. So a bellwether is supposed to be an indicator of things to come, but where does the phrase come from? Do we call it a bellwether because a, an incoming storm would bring wind with it and cause bells to ring, giving farmers time to take shelter? Um, no, that is not the case. The term derives from the Middle English, bellwether, except bell spelled B-E-L-L-E, weather, W-E-T-H-E-R, which referred to the practice of placing a bell around the neck of a castrated ram. The castrated ram is called a weather, leading a flock of sheep. So a bellwether is referring to a bell on a castrated ram leading a flock of sheep that indicates they are coming. And our second phrase this episode is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And according to Wikipedia, this expression for an avoidable error in which something good is eliminated when trying to get rid of something bad, or in other words, rejecting the favorable along with the unfavorable. This idiom derives from the German proverb, das Kind mit dem Beda Aschuten. And I pray no Germans listen to that defiling of their language that just occurred from my tongue. Anyway, the earliest record of this phrase is from 1512 in Naren Warren. Uh, English translation, Appeal to Fools, by Thomas Murner. And this book actually includes a woodcut illustration showing a woman tossing a baby out with the wastewater. And since that time, since 1512, it has been a common catchphrase in German, with examples of its use in work by Martin Luther, Jonas Kepler, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, Otto Bismarck, sorry, Otto von Bismarck, Thomas Mann, and Gunter Grass. Now, I did find another explanation on Grammarly.com that may be less informative, but I think is much more entertaining. And I quote, In the early 1500s, people only bathed once a year. Not only that, but they also bathed in the same water without changing it. The adult males would bathe first, then the females, leaving the children and babies to go last. By the time the babies got in, the water was clouded with filth. The poor mothers had to take extra care that their babies were not thrown out with the bathwater. I just imagine a mother saying, hmm, where did that baby go? 
Anyway, I hope you enjoyed those idioms. If you have some idioms you would like to share the origins of, feel free to email me at cgwithbp at gmail.com and we can share them on the pod. Uh, so one final item, the answer answers to this episode's questions asked earlier in the show, and let's see how you did. So the first question was, how many extreme hurricanes have we experienced each decade since 1990? And a quick search of Wikipedia indicates from 1990 to 1999, we had 12 Category 4 or higher hurricanes. From 2000 to 2009, we went up to 15 Category 4 or higher hurricanes. From 2010 to 2019, we dropped to 11 Category 4 or higher hurricanes. But note that in the 2020s, we have already seen seven Category 4 or higher hurricanes. And I found this interesting because I remember seeing that over the 2010 through 19 period, we'd actually had fewer Category 4 hurricanes, which went against what I had hypothesized. But then more recently, seeing that we've had a surge, it may be indicative of next to nothing, but I do know that scientists also have indicated that hurricanes, I think in general, have had higher wind speeds, but just interesting to see what we think the stats are and what they really are sometimes. Question number two, what percentage of children who get COVID die from it? And according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 0.01% of coronavirus infections in children led to deaths between January 2020 and September 2021. So this is one hundredth of a percent of infections led to deaths compared to about 25% of cases in 85 plus year olds leading to death, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And yes, I can hear someone saying that even this 0.01% death rate in children overstates the death rate as children were much more likely than, say, the elderly to be asymptomatic and therefore contract the coronavirus, uh, not know they had it, not die from it, and not be counted as someone who had the coronavirus. And true, this rate only counts the children with reported infections that led to death, so the actual death rate could actually have been lower. Uh, I also realize that many of these childhood deaths occurred in individuals with complex disabilities, um, individuals that were requiring tube feeding or assistance breathing already before contracting the virus, and that the rate in children without these pre-existing complex disabilities was much lower. Uh, however, at the same time, I think this is important information, A, because it's obviously still someone's child and it's heartbreaking, but it's also important information for not only gauging the risk to your own child, but also the importance of taking steps to not spread the disease to those 
with pre-existing conditions. So I think it's important that we get all the information. You know, a parent might say, wow, this, I don't want the vaccine because the death rate is so incredibly low, but it's also important to understand what the rate is and who is affected. Uh, to provide a little more context on childhood deaths from the coronavirus, from January 1st, 2021 through September 2021, that nine-month period of time, 280 kids died from COVID in the U.S., according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And from 2015 through 2019, during that same period of time, which would be January 1st through September, um, more children died annually each year on average from the flu and pneumonia than that. And about twice as many died annually from heart disease children and about six times more children died from accidents with motor vehicles. Anyway, hopefully you were right on the money with your guesses. And again, please feel free to share some facts that you find surprising by emailing me at cgwithbp at gmail.com so we can share them on the next pod. And that's it for this episode. And as usual, we leave you with the exquisite melodies of Voodoo Sweet. Enjoy. Mm-hmm.